Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. I learn a lot as I seek out those doing good work in the world, and sometimes, like with today's guest, it's a light bulb going off. Why didn't I or others think of that earlier? Our guest today is Rupert Isaacson, journalist, father, and originator of the Horse Boy Method for working with autistic folks. This is far too faint attribution for a person who has summoned deep love and moved mountains, or at least crossed mountains, for healing, for his son, and for the children of many others. There is a burgeoning epidemic of autism in the world with, till now, little or mostly ineffectual ways of coping with the symptoms that accompany autism. But there is greater hope now for coping with and growing helpfully with autistic individuals. Rupert's first book about the odyssey he's taken with his son was The Horse Boy, and his newest book about the continuing saga is The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing that Changed a Child's Life, and it's gripping and educational. Perhaps you've seen the documentary, The Horse Boy, but this book adds further growth and spiritual insight to the work and process and an invaluable resource. Rupert Isaacson has produced a number of travel books, so he came better equipped than most of us for his forays into Mongolia, Namibia, Aboriginal Australia, and the native reservations of the Four Corners of the USA. Rupert is joining us by phone with his newest son nearby. Rupert, I'm so very pleased you could join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me on. Not surprisingly, perhaps from the title, The Long Ride Home was quite a journey. And of course, it's only the latest installment of the journey. Before that, with The Horse Boy, you've conveyed something really important in terms of a breakthrough. What I want to understand is, why didn't people have the sense previously that autism, that the issues of disconnection or connection or rootedness could be dealt with, at least to a very significant degree, by connection with the natural world? as well as with shamans and so on. Why didn't they know that? I think the problem with people's approaches to autism has been that until the last 20 years or so, there hasn't been a real corpus of books, testimony, etc., by adult autists saying, this is what we need, this is what we want, this is what works for us, etc. And it hasn't really occurred to people to try and find out because people that have worked in the field of therapy, I think, tend to be personality types that are attracted by the idea of control. And if you put those two things together, you're going to get a negative cycle. So what happened to me was when I got the diagnosis, all the 
information or the message I was being given by the professionals in the field was overwhelmingly negative. So the words were all negative, dysfunction, disease, disorder, deficit, etc. Because I'm a journalist by trade, I'm trained to always think, what's the other side of the story? There must, there's always another side of the story. So I remember thinking quite early, it can't be all bad. I need to find some adult autists who have been successful in life and talk to them. There was only one name that kept coming up, and that was Dr. Temple Grandin, who a lot of listeners will have heard of. For those who don't know who she is, she's an adult autist, professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University, best-selling author. She also revolutionized the livestock slaughter industry in this country to make it less stressful for the animals involved. But when she was three, she was nonverbal, rocking back and forth in a corner, wiping her poo on the walls. And her dad was going to institutionalize her, etc. The mum said, no, I know there's an intellect in there, and went about finding it. So the first thing I did as a journalist, really after the diagnosis, was I thought, well, I need to go talk to this woman. And I went up to Fort Collins in Colorado, where she is, and said, you know, how does my son become you? And she said, oh, actually, Rupert, it's quite easy. You want to follow his interests, including his obsessive interests, including the ones that you don't like or think are inappropriate or are just not interested in, because that's where his brain is. You just follow those, and that's where everything will come from. Then she said, you must do everything or as much as you can in nature. And I said, why? And she said, because people on the autism spectrum have a terrible time with negative sensory issues, which make their nervous system misfire. And most of the negative sensory issues that they suffer from are caused by man-made triggers, for example, fluorescent strip lights, industrial noise, echo, smell of industrial cleaning solvents, things like this, which you get, of course, in spades, in supermarkets, schools, airports, that sort of thing, where you tend to see these kids melting down. So she said, if you go outside into nature, you don't have any of those bad sensory triggers. So your child's brain is going to be open for learning, not shut down. And then she said, the final thing you must do is let him move, 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 because these kids are what you call kinetic learners. So I said, that's great, thank you. And I went back home, and I saw that the behavioral therapists that were working with my son were not doing any of these things. And when I asked them why, and, you know, I'd just gone to talk to the world's most famous autistic person, and she told me to do the exact opposite, I immediately got a very aggressive pushback from these ABA therapists. Fine, I understand this. I'm going to just do what Temple Grandin told me to do. And indeed, that turned out to be exactly right. I followed my son literally outside into nature and into the woods behind our house. We began to communicate immediately over which plants he wanted to interact with, what he wanted to put in his mouth, what he didn't want to put in his mouth. I learned very quickly what was edible, what was not. I got online, I bought guidebooks, I figured it out. And then one day, he saw my neighbor's horse, Betsy, I'm a lifelong horseman, but it hadn't occurred to me to try and work with horses with my kid because I had no background in therapeutic riding. I just thought he'd actually be unsafe around horses because of his behaviors. And he forged a relationship with that mare that was so extraordinary that I had to follow it. And everything good happened from that point. So when you ask why do people not think that nature and movement and this sort of thing is going to be good for autistic people, it's because they're not listening to autistic people. If you go and actually talk to autistic people, and if you read the books that they're writing now about their experiences with these types of behavioral therapy and how awful it was for them, and there's, there's a lot of this testimony, then it's loud and clear from that population what it is they want. 
I think there must be something about your temperament that predisposed you to look outside the box that control isn't a thing that maybe you cared for much either so that no and it's very interesting because i grew up as a horse trainer one of the things you know very quickly with horse training is that if you get too into the idea of control you lose the horse there are a couple of things with me with that one is that i'm used to the idea of ambiguity i'm used to the idea of things being two different things at the same time which of course is what real life actually is despite people saying, oh, you know, things are black and things are white and things are never black and white. We know this. But for me, because I was brought up in London, but my parents are African and my father is Jewish and my mother is half Africana, half English-speaking South African. And some of my family were evil architects of apartheid and others in the same family were activists fighting against apartheid and actually in jail for that, sometimes within the same immediate family. And I grew up very much with this sense that you could be at the crossroads of things, that you don't need things to be exactly one thing or exactly another thing, and that really where your power is is in the nexus, in the crossroads, where all these cultures meet, because what it gives you is this great understanding of the sort of three-dimensional complexity of things. I think this stood me in good stead for being a journalist because it allows me to look at things always from both sides of the coin and I don't have any difficulty usually putting myself in somebody else's shoes. Even if I don't like that person, I can understand what their motivations are and to some degree sometimes even empathize even if that's not my choice. And then with with horses, you have to be this way. If you become overly directional, you will have an accident. The horse will challenge you at some point and hurt you. You have to really let the horse lead you while at the same time guiding them in in the way that a dominant horse would in their own herd hierarchy. And that's a a dance you have to learn. Because of working with horses, I'm also used to working across like a species barrier, across a verbal, non-verbal barrier, that sort of thing, predator-prey barrier, dealing with fear-based creatures, which crosses into autism because there actually are some differences in the autistic brain. And one of them is an overactive amygdala the part of the brain that governs fight, flight, and freeze, and you're dealing with that with horses all the time. So weirdly, all my training, both cultural and professional, led me to the point where I was really ready to have an autistic son. How old was Rowan when you got the diagnosis? He was about two and a half, and we got it relatively early because his mother, my ex-wife Kristen, uh, I say ex, but we're on very good terms, we're very close, is a professor of developmental psychology at University of Texas. So she was picking it up quite early. Indeed, we figured out the diagnosis perhaps six months or so earlier than we would have done otherwise. But, you know, once you get the diagnosis, again, people don't have much to tell you. You know, they're like, well, okay, here's this thing, and, you know, he's got it forever, and there's really nothing you can do about it, but there's these therapies, but these therapies are really expensive, and we don't really know if they work or not, but blah, blah, blah. And, And this is what parents get. So you end up immediately in this sort of miasma of fear and confusion. And what nobody talks about at the outset is what the gifts of autism are. And this is something that I think needs to change. There are many, many gifts. I think that because my son, I believe, is on the spectrum, he's extremely functioning. I don't think anybody would call him autistic, but he functions differently. I saw those self-soothing behaviors when he was young. His reaction to sound in particular, his reaction against it, uh, when kids were in a room and they're all making noise, he would be covering his ears as a first grader. Just, it these was, are the sense issues that Dr. Temple Grandin was talking about, you know, 
start of my story. They're very, very acute, particularly when the, the child is young. So the backstory to The Long Ride Home, your latest book, is what happened in Mongolia. Give a little bit of an idea there, because, you know, you're talking about traveling for endless days on horseback with an incontinent child who at that time, I think, was what? <laughs> it does sound a bit nuts, doesn't it, when you put it like that? <laughs> I, I didn't mean to name the facts, but... <laughs> Very funny. Well, what happened is we went out with a kid that was autistic, and obviously we came back with a kid that was autistic. We weren't looking for a cure for autism. Autism is a personality type. There's no need to cure it. But the deficits, the three key dysfunctions that he had, which was the incontinence, the tantruming, and the inability to make friends, these three things he left behind him in Mongolia. After these journeys that we had taken from traditional healer to traditional healer, and that really changed everything for us. And then what happened was the final healer of the reindeer people, the tribes that live on and with reindeer, they ride reindeer, it's extraordinary, you know, up, up in the mountains of South Siberia, Ghost, the shaman there who worked on Rhone for the final three days said, you know, the stuff that really drives you crazy, the incontinence, the tantruming, that stuff will end kind of now-ish, you know, and he turned out to be right. 27 hours later, Rowan did his first intentional poo and cleaned himself, and we counted from that point on maybe six tantrums of any note over a two-week period, and then after that, they were really pretty much gone. It was quite extraordinary. But he said, in order for this healing to stick, in order for it to last, you have to confirm it. You have to do three more journeys in the next three years. And this is the information I'm getting from the ancestors. So I, I sort of went, gulp, okay, because putting these expeditions together is no easy thing. So I felt like, you mean I have to come back here? And he's like, no, you don't have to come back here because I understand that this is ridiculously remote. But he said, you know, I know that you have family in Africa because we talked, you know, that the healers down there are very good. You know, you should look at Native America, you know, look for the healers that are sort of going to be part of where you are. So I said, okay, so we did. And that's the story of the long ride home. The following year after Mongolia, we were out in the Kalahari Desert in Namibia with healers that I know personally from my human rights work. I'm also a human rights activist. Then the following year, we were in Australia for work, and I found a very, very good Aboriginal shaman up in the tropical north called Harold. And then the final year, we were on the Navajo reservation here in the USA, and that was a really incredible healing that happened there. So we followed his advice. And in fact, it did pan out, as he said. But what happened as well was that that was the sort of non-rational side of, of our journey. But there was a rational side to my son had become verbal in the saddle in front of me relatively early before we went to Mongolia. And I had started to notice that there was a pattern to when he communicated, when the horse was in certain rhythms. When we got back from Mongolia, I became curious, was it just my son? Or was it other kids too? So I started to run unofficial playdates in the neighborhood for other kids on the spectrum. And there's no shortage of them because the current diagnosis rates are one child in 68 over the age of eight. It's huge. So these kids began to come out and we began to work with them with the horse. We saw very quickly, yeah, there was a universal response, particularly when the horse was in these very balanced sort of dancey rhythms. I then began to speak to neurologists and say, why is this working? And I would show them video and I would invite them out. And they all, very interestingly, came up with the same answer. And they said, what you're doing when you're in these particular rhythms with the horse is you are flooding the child's body with a feel-good hormone 
called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the hormone not just of feeling good and happiness, it's the hormone of communication. And when you're dealing with autism, auto, the Greek word for the self, autism, selfism, autism, the self, the difficulty is the relationship with the exterior world. You're, you're going out into the exterior world on this horse who's carrying the child sort of effortlessly, in fact, delightfully, because you're filling them with oxytocin. And then the child wants to communicate because of this. And that oxytocin is also calming the overactive fear center of the brain, the anxiety center of the brain, which is called the amygdala. When you're out there like this and you're feeding information into the child's brain by really talking into their ear, like listening to the radio sort of thing, that's why you're getting all this communication and learning. And we're like, oh my gosh, well, if this is true, then surely we could reproduce this without a horse. We could reproduce this in certain rhythms and balances on play equipment and on my shoulders and in a pool and on a trampoline and in a wheelbarrow and anything I could think of. And it turned out that, yes, this was true. So we ended up founding a center and a, and a foundation and coming up with two methodologies of working with kids with neurological difference, one with horses and one without. The one with horses is called Horseboy Method, and it recreates what I was doing with Rowan. And the one without horses for classrooms, kids who live in the city, etc., etc., is called Movement Method. And if you go back to Dr. Temple Grandin's original advice to me, do you remember she said, go out in nature where there's no bad sensory triggers, follow the child's interests, and let them move, move, move while they learn. So it had still come full circle back to my original mentorship from her. You know, one thing that strikes me is that our society is only getting worse in terms of the factors that make autism not fit well say, sit in a desk for an increasingly long period of time, do not move about in general, be deprived of time in nature and outdoors. All of those things have only been increasing in our society. So is there any correlation between the rates of autism and these behaviors which have become so normalized in our society? Absolutely. And not just autism, but ADD, ADHD, etc., etc., that when you deprive kids increasingly of what kids are actually supposed to do, which is run around in the woods, and that's how they develop their brains with games, building forts, hunting, tracking, all that stuff, you know, interacting with natural objects is how our brains are actually hardwired to develop. Go figure, because we are, you know, animals. If you take that away, you start to get neurological problems, problems within the brain. And this is increasingly, there's no controversy over this among scientists anymore at all. It's sadly within the education system, which is broken, that this is not regarded. They don't listen to the scientists. They are 50 years behind the scientists, still planning to produce children for the sort of military industrial machine. And we know it doesn't work. You know, kids in a lot of these schools drop out. They end up in jail, etc., etc. And we're supposed to be the most advanced country in the world. We're not. You know, if we look at the school systems of countries like Finland and Sweden, where they've actually cut classroom time by 50%, they still dominate the world rankings in terms of academic performance. Very clearly, making kids sit at desks, whether they're autistic or not, it's kind of not a good idea. So the vast majority of children get this sensory deprivation as a norm, and that leads to depression. So, you know, much of our population is medicated.
as I was listening to you, one of the things I'd observe with my own son, and again, he's so high functioning, no one would normally attach autism to him. But Asperger's is a very wide spectrum. One of the things that was soothing to him along the way was the electronic kind of computer games. That made sense to me for a bad reason, which is the rock opera Tommy by The Who. You know, the deaf, dumb, and blind kid, which is not autism, but you know, it's kind of existing in this self world. And I was wondering how often video games are actually soothing for autistic folks. They are, and people take all sorts of odd positions on computers and video games and that sort of thing. You know, oh, they're terrible. No, they're not terrible, actually. It's, it's the world we live in. But what one wants to do is let the kids develop their skills with this because they're going to need them in the professional world. But at the same time, you want to balance it out with time in nature. So the bottom line from the, the brain research, the latest brain research, seems to suggest that if you really limit access to screens and computers and that sort of thing until the child's about three, you give the brain a chance to develop in the normal way before it develops this hunger for very quick, easy responses. And then if you start allowing increasing amounts of computer time, then actually the kid tends to use it in a good way. And of course, if you have a culture within the family of going outside in nature and doing stuff, you know, hiking, canoeing, exploring, going to check stuff out, sport, whatever it is, you're going to balance that digital time with stuff that's actually very good for the brain normally and the body. And then you avoid what researchers like Dr. Manfred Spitzer, for example, from in Germany, they've coined this, this phrase digital dementia, which kids can sometimes develop quite early. And where they can't really retain information, they need a constant feed. It's almost like they have to be spoon-fed information. And they can't think for themselves. They can't seek they can't research, they can't, even when they go online, they can't figure out what's a good source of information, what's a bad source of information, this sort of thing. One of the benefits of interacting with nature and natural objects and so forth is that it takes time for things to happen. You have to figure out why something happens. You don't get immediate gratification, which you do at the click of, you know, when, when you click a screen. So if you wait a while for the child to start doing that stuff, you give the brain a chance to develop in the normal and good way, and then you can add this extra tool, and the child will use it to their advantage. But if you, it seems that if you let it come too early, it too much, the child can develop this thing called digital dementia, where they're, they're, it's like they almost need a crutch of a computer to do anything. They can't work out problems for themselves, and this becomes a real issue when they get older. Does this mean that 100 years ago, our rates of autism were tiny compared to what we have now? You say one in 68 now. Yeah. Well, when I was a boy, it was two in 10,000. There's several things going on with that. It's not all down to digital stuff at all. That's only one small part of things. And that's actually probably more connected with things like ADD. The reason why we are seeing this huge rise in what we call regressive autism is more biomedical. A frequent story that you hear if you work in my field is, okay, my child was developing normally until about 14 to 18 months, and then they suddenly regressed massively, lost everything, floated away, and I haven't really been able to recover them ever since. There's some things which happen around that time. The vaccine controversy, for example, it appears that it may no longer be a controversy. There's a whistleblower currently at the CDC called... Dr. William Thompson, 
who has come forward publicly. He was one of the senior researchers on the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, which they give around that time. It's a clustered vaccine, which a lot of mums have been saying for years, my kid got this vaccine and then had this horrible reaction and, you know, basically wasn't there anymore. The media has generally either not touched that or has refuted it in a very aggressive way. And then now, anyway, there is a whistleblower who was on the original research team who said, we absolutely knew there was a correlation with autism. We were told to suppress it, told to destroy the documents. I didn't. Here they are. And there's a movie called Vaxxed that's out right now, which goes into this. So that's definitely one factor. And no one in the media will touch it because, you know, you can be killed if, if you go public on this sort of stuff. It seems to be that if you give kids an awful lot of vaccines very early, that it can have a detrimental effect on the brain and that if you want to vaccinate, it's maybe a better idea to spread them out, wait till later, that sort of thing. So this isn't just associated with the mercury that they used to put in the vaccines? But that's part of it. And actually, it's, it's a bit more complex. It's not just the mercury. It's also a mercury-aluminium or what you guys call aluminum interaction that often there's both as preservatives in a vaccine. And it's not just the MMR vaccine. It's others too. This can really, really kill neurons in certain types of brain. And then the age at which you get the vaccine can be a factor. The younger you get it, the more damage it can do. The longer you wait, usually the more the child's brain has metabolized and can handle it. And then finally, um, you know, in the old days, we always used to get single-shot vaccines, and now they don't anymore. Now they tend to cluster them. Like, you can't get a single-shot measles vaccine anymore here in the USA. If you wanted to get that, you'd have to fly to Germany or Switzerland. And unfortunately, what's happening in the USA right now is that people are being divided into two camps, you know, pro-vax and anti-vax, which is very silly because we should all be pro-vax, you know, but we should be pro-safe-vax. You know, if my generation, which is very healthy, got sort of six vaccinations or so through childhood, single-shot ones very much spaced out, and now we're seeing this, you know, tsunami of autism and brain damage with kids being given up to 40, if you include the boosters, clearly things have changed. And, you know, do we need to go back to a safer model for sure? So do we want to vaccinate? Yes, of course we want to vaccinate, you know. But are we vaccinating perhaps in a way that is proving detrimental to some types of metabolism? It would appear so. And anyway, there's a whistleblower at the CDC who's telling us, absolutely, William Thompson. So clearly it's time for a change on that. I want to remind folks that this fascinating person you're listening to is Rupert Isaacson. He's a journalist, but even more than that, the probably the most important his credential he carries is he's a father. And his son, his first son, is Rowan. Uh, Kirian is his new son. But the horse boy method for dealing with autism is what we're talking about today. He is the author of a new book, The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. And I thought that was a misstatement because it's not just a child's life. It's so many children's lives that are healed by what you've learned. But this is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. It's on the web at northernspiritradio.org with 11 years of our programs for free listening and download. There's links to our guests. So when you want to get a hold of Rupert, come via northernspiritradio.org or two of the sites where you might want to go to learn about some of this work is horseboyworld.com and another kidsmustmove.com. Both those links on northernspiritradio.org. There's 
also a place to post comments, and we really prefer two-way communication. So post your comments when you do visit. There's also a place to donate. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not by government, and it's not by corporations. It's by the people who are interested in having an alternative news source available to them. Speaking of that, the most important place where I would advocate that you make your donations go is your local community radio station. Because they're locally focused, you'll hear alternative views that you get nowhere else. And it's just so crucial to the advancement of our society that we keep that diversity up, that we not submit to control. So start out by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Rupert Isaacson here. Just fascinating books. And one of the reasons it was so important to me to have Rupert on was because of the deep spiritual questions that are confronted and the methods, the alternatives that we don't really explore in our society. And I wanted to get into that pretty quickly. Is it okay to go there now, Rupert? Yeah, I do. So one of the things you mentioned, part of your ancestry includes Jewish. I mean, growing up in England, but family from South Africa. So you've got apartheid and you've got African roots, black African roots. You've got uh, an ex-wife, a uh, Buddhist. Did you have actually a religious upbringing as well, or did your parents I, I did a little bit, oddly enough, but not through my parents. I was at choir school growing up. I was a chorister at the Temple Church in London, which is high Anglican, about as Catholic as you can be while still being a Protestant. <laughs> and interestingly, I was neither baptized nor confirmed. But we spent many years in the liturgy of high Anglicanism. There was good stuff in there and there was bad stuff in there. Unfortunately, when you deal with a church as powerful as the Temple Church in London, which is the second oldest building in London, it was built in 1089 in the 11th century by the guys from the First Crusade who came back, the Knights Templar. Well, what I can tell you is it is a seat of great power. And when you have that kind of power, you're going to get some abuses of power. At the same time, and we definitely saw them, you know, within the mystic Christian message, the Christ message, there's a lot of great beauty and truth. And again, as a child, I could sort of see both. But because I had no religious background in my own family, I felt that it was, I was probably in a good position to discern what I wanted to take from it and what I didn't want to take from it. And I think what is true is that there is a universal at the core of all religions and there's a universal at the core of all spirituality, and that is love, universal, unconditional love, that God is love and love is God. And I remember very early seeing that in a church script and thinking, that's a truth, that's a real truth. It may not be, it may, unfortunately, a lot of the priests I'm meeting are not embodying this ethic, but nonetheless it is true. God is love and love is God, and I think that that's something which we need to hold central to what it means to be a human being in this fractured world that we're living in, where we're going back to the medieval situation of Muslim versus Christian, etc., etc. We seem to be reliving the Crusades right now. We need to remember that we're all the same. And, you know, if someone goes out there and commits acts of terrorism, it's a terrible thing, but it doesn't really have much to do with the spirituality of that person. It just has to do with the anger, dark ego of that person. And unfortunately, within religious structures, because they are power structures, these dark ego forces are nurtured, whether it's in the church, whether it's in Islam, etc., etc. And it's really only individuals operating from their hearts, from God speaking through love, who are ever going to change this, regardless of what spiritual background. 
So if this is nurtured in religious groups, is it also nurtured in the shamanistic religions? Oh, yeah. It's much more nurtured in shamanistic cultures than it is in religious groups, because religious groups, unfortunately, deal with power structures and hierarchies that are all about people, not so much about God. One of the things about when you're with hunting and gathering tribes, particularly, there's no hierarchy, there's no priesthood. The shaman goes through rigorous training, but they're not supported by the community as a sort of separate class with power, wear special robes, you have to kiss their ass, all that stuff give them money. No, 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 no. They're individuals, private individuals. When they get old at the sort of height of their power, it becomes a bit of a logical thing for the community to support them. But when they're younger, no, they hunt and gather like everybody else. And the idea is that you don't set people apart. The idea of creating a priesthood, you know, is a very dangerous thing because it gives people power and abuse power. One of the lovely things about shamanic cultures is that the great leveling People are not given special privileges, etc., etc., just because they are interacting with the divine. And because of that, there's much less abuse. You know, I want to go into in a little bit more detail what happened with Rowan in your journeys taking your autistic son there. But I'll, let me first mention a little experience I had, and I only had a tiny glimpse. Again, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. Togo is the country. Just a month or something before I left Togo, I was wandering through the jungle one day, and I came upon a fetisher, which we might call a white magician, doing a ceremony for some folks, and it involved chicken feathers and praying to different directions. And his chest was immensely scarred. It was part of it. But I didn't speak the local language except for a few phrases, so I really wasn't following, but they allowed me to just sit there and observe. And in conversation afterwards, I decided to ask to have another ceremony held on behalf of myself and the other Peace Corps volunteer who was in my village where I lived. One of the things that I found absolutely astounding You can ask for whatever you want, and women often come and say, you know, they're having problems with fertility. Can you help with that? Or, you know, something else is happening, you know, bad crops. You can go for anything. The other Peace Corps volunteer made the request. He was bald. He was only 25, but he was bald. And he says, well, how about hair? And (laughs) the fetisher said, no, you can't do that. That's caused by a, a worm that's in your gums. And so that one can't be done. But the things that both he and I did ask for, the deal is you pay for the ceremony, which involves some animals and things, but you have agreed upon price that you pay only if you get what you ask for. Interesting. And so it's 100% not your money back, but you don't pay until you get it. And I don't know, doctors here don't do that. No, they don't. What's interesting, <laughs> too, about shamanism is that, of course, if there was nothing in it, well, everyone who lives in those areas would be dead because... <laughs> You know, they often are living at a long distance from Western medicine, may not have access to it. So they have to fall back on their traditional practices. And my uncle is a very, very hard medical scientist. He was actually the head of pathology at University College Hospital in London, which is the equivalent to Johns Hopkins here. He said something very interesting to me after the Horseboy movie was made. He said, Rupert, what you've touched on here is the irrational side of medicine. He said, well, people tend to think that Western medicine is this really super rational thing. And they, it actually isn't. It's 50% rational, 50% irrational. I said, explain. He said, it's the placebo effect. He said, people gravely misunderstand the placebo effect. People think that they dismiss something because it might be explained through the placebo effect, which means they fundamentally misunderstand what the placebo effect is. In a drug trial, there's a control group who get the placebo. And 
the drug has to make more people better than the placebo. A lot of drugs fail, which means that a lot of people who get the placebo get better. They don't just think they get better and then die later. They actually get better. And we have no idea why, but it's clear that the power of suggestion and empathy can trigger the human immune system. This we know, or there would be no drug industry. And he said, so people think it's all terribly rational because it's chaps in white coats and they go to the doctor and they get a prescription and they go to the pharmacy and they get the drug and their symptoms go away. But what they, because they were present at the drug trial, like being present at a shaman's fire at a shamanic ceremony, they didn't see these people miraculously getting better when they were given a sugar pill. So therefore, they miss that whole side of it. But in fact, Western medicine is 50% irrational. So he said, you know, is it possible that a shaman can heal this way? Absolutely. And this is, this is my uncle talking, ex-head of pathology at University College Hospital. So I then was intrigued by this, and I started making some inquiries and finding out that actually a lot of hospitals use traditional healers, even here in the USA. For example, if you want to find a good shaman, let's say you wanted to go to Alaska and locate a good shaman, a really good way to start is to contact a local hospital and ask the administrators there, is there any old man or old woman who comes on the wards and does funny ritual stuff? And almost always they'll say, oh yeah, there is actually, and we don't know why, but the people always seem to get better quite quickly, so we, we're very happy for this person to come on the ward. I then found out, get this, that Johns Hopkins Hospital their children's ward has a shaman that comes on the wards. How about that? You know, that's amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine having been at the board meeting where they were deciding that one? You know, item number 32A, uh, the shaman, um, you know, on the children's ward. All those in favor say, I, you know, these are hard scientists making these decisions. So it's often journalists, academics, people who are ego invested in having a particular point of view that have trouble with these ideas. But often you find that good scientists and doctors are totally open to this because they know that 50% of medicine is irrational. So let's go back to the whole experience with Rowan and your experience not only in Mongolia, but in the three visits to Shaman following that. And there's some things that you witnessed that are just inexplicable mm -hmm. by the normal rules of what we think is reality. In Mongolia, you know, you're visiting with the reindeer people and Ghost performs a what three-day ceremony, and very promptly afterwards, there's drastic changes in Rowan's autistic behaviors. But you've got to follow up with three follow-up doses of shamanism. So first you go down to the southern end of Africa. You go to Namibia. You have some contact there. Would you mention, were there things that you observed that seemed inexplicable in the moment? Yeah, more in the second healing, which happened in Australia, with, with the Bushmen in Namibia. What's lovely when you go to a Bushman healer is they take on suffering for you. And so you will see things that you can't explain, like the healer begins to bleed spontaneously from the nose, mouth, sometimes eyes even, great streams of mucus coming out of their nose and mouth as they try to expel the sickness which they're drawing out of the patient and through their body and out and so on. It's a very compassion-based approach, the idea is that they suffer for you. And what happened after that with Rowan was an explosion of mathematics that had just not been there before. It's very, very interesting. He regained everything that he'd lost because he'd started to regress again. But then there was this mathematical dialogue that just exploded out of him almost immediately. 
which was very, very interesting. The second year in Australia, we were up in the rainforest, the Daintree Rainforest, at the northern end of the tropical zone under New Guinea. And um, that's the oldest rainforest in the world. It's very beautiful. And the heat there, that's where something absolutely logic-defying happened, which is... The, the, the healer has Rowan sitting in a, in a, in a chair in this, in this hut in the forest, and he's just moving his hands around Rowan's head and making these little sort of pulling motions and flicking his hand out of this little ceramic teacup that's there. And although he's, because he's Aboriginal, when he speaks English, he speaks in an Australian accent. All right, yeah, it should be right. You know, we'll put him in here and you're going to pull this stuff out of his head, and I think it'll be good. And, you know, it's, just, it's like this. You know, you want a cup of tea before we start? You know, um, it's all very casual. And he's flicking into this teacup. So, of course, you know, I'm curious. I, I look into the teacup, as does Kristen, Rowan's mum. And we see that the teacup is beginning to fill with this sort of mucusy liquid with little sort of stringy bits of blood in it, a little bit like if you, pick, if you blow your nose, you know, and it sometimes looks a bit like that or something. And there's no discernible way of how this is happening because there's no sleight of hand because his arms are completely bare. There's no hypnosis going on. And yet this, as every time he flicks into this cup, after making this pulling motion at the air around Rowan's head, the cup is filling with this liquid. At the end of the treatment, he just sort of tips the stuff in the, he looks at it, goes, mm, tips it in the fire. Me and Kristen are sort of, uh, what's going on? You know, so we, 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 we try to ask him, and of course he just changes the subject. And then the following day, usually you find that healings often do go over three days, the following day, he does it again, and we see this liquid again. It's absolutely mind-bending, beginning to fill in this cup, but much, much less than the day before. The third day, almost nothing. And he looks at it and goes, yup, should be right. Should be right. <laughs> and r- r- ruffles <laughs> Rowan's head and gets off the, the chair and goes, I feel better in my head. I feel happy. And me and Kristen are left going, well, what was that? We can't explain it. It's what we saw, you know, She's a scientist, you know, I'm a journalist, and yet this thing happened right in front of us that we just had to be comfortable saying, I have no idea what that was. What happened after that was Rowan developing and displaying theory of mind. It's sort of the more advanced stage of neurological development where it's very clear that you know that other people are thinking differently to you and can anticipate this. The usual way that kids display this is through pranking. And kids on the spectrum typically come to it very late, if at all. But it's a very necessary milestone, theory of mind. So, for example, if you put, like, a bucket of water on a door, you know, and someone walks into that thing and gets a bucket of water, it's only funny if the person doesn't know that the bucket is there. So if you set that trap, you need to know that that person doesn't know that there's a bucket, that they're not expecting it, and therefore it will be funny. This is something which neurotypical kids typically get to, normal kids get to at about three, three and a half and people on the spectrum very late, if ever. And it's one of the cognitive skills that you absolutely need to get through life. And Rowan began to display this the day after the healing. He started playing practical jokes on me. It was extraordinary. And, Ro- <laughs> um, and his mum, who, who is a you know, professor of developmental psychology, immediately said, oh, my God, that's theory of mind. You know, I'm like, well, I don't know. It's kind of funny what he's doing. She said, no, 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 Rupert, this is theory of mind. This is amazing. And then finally, the final healing was on the Navajo reservation amazing healer there called Blue Horse and again three days and on the third day we've finished the healing and we've had the ceremony at dawn where we've been blessed with sacred pollen and we're driving out towards Albuquerque east out of the reservation on Interstate 40 and as you leave the reservation there's 
a very beautiful sacred mountain that marks the eastern boundary called Mount Taylor, and it sits rather like Kilimanjaro above the desert as a snow cap with a heat haze underneath it, so it looks like it's floating in midair. Very, very beautiful, because cause it's America. Underneath that, there's a truck stop, a McDonald's, and a casino, and there was nowhere else to stop for food, so we thought, okay, we'll have to stop at the McDonald's, even though we don't want to, and Rowan wanted one of those drinks that they have there, which are full of horrible colored food, food dyes, which make his brain go very squiffy. So I didn't want him to have one, and he wanted one, and he got grumpy, and I got grumpy, and then I reverted to sort of my inner three-year-old. I'm like, fine, be grumpy, you know, just spoil the whole day. And from the back seat comes this voice, and he says, Dad, I'm not being grumpy. I'm just telling you what drink I want. We had never had this kind of unscripted conversation. I literally drove onto the shoulder of the freeway and had to stop, and me and Chris were like, who's this kid in the back seat? And we never looked back. So do I say shamanism cures autism? No, of course not. That's not what... We're not looking for cures here anyway. But can you address challenges and dysfunctions and so forth through unconditional love and nature, which are really the two things at the center of what that shamanic process is? Yeah, I think you can, actually, absolutely, in whatever way is right for you and your family. So you've done this. You've written about it now, both with The Horse Boy and The Long Ride Home. I'm sure that other people are trying to walk in your footsteps, taking their kids for shamanic healings. Have you heard back from them? Yes, some have. Of course, you know, I'm not the only person to come up with this idea anyway, because quite a lot of people out there like me who've had exposure to this sort of world through journalism or travel or whatever. So when I wrote the book, some people said I was full of poo. Other people said, oh, yeah, I tried that with my kid and it it worked really well. And then subsequently, you know, some people did do some journeys like that with their kids and reported back to me and generally reported a pretty good outcome. One thing I would say is it's not an easy thing to do. You, you don't just like, oh, yeah, off we go. You know, we're, we're off to see a shaman. To go see a good shaman, it's a bit of an expedition. You end up having to go into quite a remote area. There's a lot of logistics to it. It takes a lot of time. It doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money, but it's, it is an expedition into the backcountry in a big way. And so relatively few people are going to do that. Of course, in the course of going to see a shaman, you're probably going to be spending a lot of time in very powerful raw nature because that's where they are so let's say you didn't go to see a shaman but you did go spend time with your kid in a remote wilderness area of the usa or something like that it's going to help but equally any time in nature is going to help because and this is the thing that people that i think I've, i've had more reports back on but a lot of people are starting to realize that the more time you spend in nature the better for your kid and that doesn't have to mean Yellowstone National Park or Siberia. That can be a really good local park, the beach, state parks, this sort of thing. And to make it your culture as a family to go and do little camping trips and spend time in this nature rather than just observe it from the car from time to time while living a life that's really going from one computer screen to another computer screen. That this is going to really help a lot. And I have now become part of a sort of an international movement towards kinetic learning and teaching children in nature, which includes our website, kidsmustmove.com. It includes the forest schools. It includes, which if you haven't checked out the forest schools, people should. It's it's pretty amazing. And, you know, the school districts in Scandinavia, Finland, Sweden, etc., where even in the regular school district, kids out into nature about 50% of the time, and their academic scores are only getting better 
because this is actually what we need as human beings. You know, we need unconditional love and we need time in nature because go figure, it's the environment that we're actually pre-designed to be in. And then I think where the unconditional love part of the sort of shamanic thing comes in is let the child lead you and look for the gifts in the autism. One of the things which you can't help but notice when you go into an indigenous setting, a tribal setting, is that the person who is the healer almost always exhibits some form of neurological, neuropsychiatric symptoms. You probably remember this from when you were in the Peace Corps, that the, the witch doctors or healers that you were meeting in those villages in Togo were often pretty weird. They're often displaying symptoms that we would diagnose as adult autism, schizophrenia, epilepsy, bipolar, that sort of thing. And yet in their culture, it's regarded as a job qualification. In our culture, it's regarded as a disqualification from society. Those societies in, in Africa or Mongolia are more practical than ours. They're actually, we think, oh, we're very practical people. We're very science-based people, the Westerners. We're not at all. We make most of our decisions from our limbic system, our emotional part of the brain. This has been proved. And we can afford to waste human resources, so we chuck these people on the trash heap. When you're in the mountains of Siberia, imagine how hard it is when winter comes. You're not going to waste your time. You're not going to just because something appeals to you from some whimsical idea. It either works or it doesn't. You haven't got time to mess about. And you certainly can't afford to waste human resources like we can. So if someone can do something, they do do something. So I think that there's some lessons to be drawn from this, which is that clearly people on the spectrum, this is an interesting thing, if you work with people on the spectrum, they're very therapeutic to be around. And one of the reasons seems to be that they don't press our mirror neurons and therefore activate our ego and the inner critic, which is always in our heads, you know, comparing us with other people, saying, you know, he's, he's taller than me, he makes more money than me, he's better looking than me, he's got a PhD, blah, 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 I don't, you know. There's plenty of neurotypical, normal, quote-unquote normal people, chucking themselves off bridges every day because of this inner voice. When you work with people on the spectrum, they have what are called very quiet egos, like the Buddhist idea of the quiet ego. It's there, but it's in the background, and it's one of the great gifts of autism, along with the memory and often above-average intelligence and intellect. And so you're suddenly in the presence of someone who's giving you a therapeutic effect, which raises the question, who is the therapist? Should we be paying, you know, seriously, should we be paying autistic people $100 an hour to hang out with them because we get a break from our mirror neurons, we get a break from that inner critic, we're less likely to go and jump off a bridge that day. And that brings us back to the traditional human model where these people are healers and recognized as such. And yet in our culture, we think they can't do anything. It's really silly. Well, and actually my experience when I was in Togo, the village I lived in, which is called Tablikbo, and this was true of virtually every village, they had their village foo, one or more of them, the crazy people. They were accepted as part of the community. They functioned in the community. Here, we'd lock them up, the same people. But I saw them interacting, and they had their role, and they had the way that they functioned. So they're functional if your walls are not too narrow and your box is not too small. Exactly. So, you know, if we're dealing with a tsunami now of neurological difference, one in 68 over the age of eight just on the autism spectrum alone, this is going to be a massive change in the human population that we're talking about. And it's going to affect everything, how business is done, how the economic world looks, etc. And I think it's something we should really embrace because these are good people. These are not people who, who are power-driven, ego-driven people. So are we at the threshold of watching a bit of a evolutionary shift in our own society? Because we know for sure that whether it's through religion or economics or you know ecological 
problems that we have on the planet, that, that the human ego, particularly the male human ego, gone rampant, is bringing us to the brink of non-viability as a species. We know this. Is it possible that this thing that may even have been caused by these toxins is actually going to be the thing that helps us come back from that brink? It helps us evolve as a species to get out of this vicious cycle that we appear to be in. It looks as though we might. And so then if you're working in the field of autism or you're an autism parent, it's interesting. You, you sort of end up having a front row seat at this shift in humanity for the better. And I find that quite exciting. There's so much that's exciting, both in the books, The Long Ride Home and The Horse Boy. People should definitely check them out. You can find links to Rupert Isaacson on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. There's so much that we can learn by the horse boy method, the movement method, the the way that kids must move.com and horseboyworld.com. I'm trying to mention these things a few times so that folks know that there are resources that we've been ignoring, and we've been ignoring them to our own peril. It's our own loss that we haven't done this. Fortunately, Rupert, you've been brave enough to take the road less taken. You've done some pioneering research, and you've drawn on the other people like Temple Grandin who are sharing the message, if only we weren't deaf to it. I'm so thankful that you've not only done the scientific work, the research work, but that you've been open to the spiritual gifts, which clearly have been so impactful, not only for Rowan, but the other young people. You've seen a lot of them through your work with the horses and with movement. You've seen transformation happen. Oh, our weekly outreach as an organization, now Horse Boy Foundation, is 20,000 families a week, and we see astonishing results all the time now. You've been so instrumental in such an important healing for the world. And part of what we need to heal is our relationship to people on the autistic spectrum. It's not just that they need to be fixed in any way. It's that we need to heal a relationship. And this only pretends better and better things for the future. Thank you so much for writing The Long Ride Home. It was a real gift to me. People, you, we've only scratched the surface here. Get a hold of it. You're going to have a great ride along with them. Rupert, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's been a real honor. That was Rupert Isaacson, journalist, father, activist, and advocate. See the movie The Horse Boy for some amazing up-close experiences of a family finding healing around autism while on a trip to the shamans in Mongolia. And thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.